Hello, and welcome to the summer 2016 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up, there were several developments in the challenges to Mississippi's HB 1523, or the so-called Protecting Freedom of Conscience from Government Discrimination Act, in federal court. Can you update our listeners, Art? Okay, so uh, HB 1523 was passed uh, this spring. It's uh, intended, uh, well, it's it's intended to respond to Obergefell versus Hodges last July, last June's uh, Supreme Court decision, uh, saying that uh, same-sex couples have a Fourteenth Amendment right to get married. Uh, the response of the uh, Mississippi, uh, uh, yeah, the Mississippi legislature is to say, first of all, uh, we think that clerks, local circuit court clerks who are in charge of issuing marriage licenses should be allowed to recuse themselves if they have religious objections to issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples, as long as they make sure that there's someone in their office who will issue the licenses. Uh, But the law doesn't go into any kind of specifics about how that will be taken care of. But they are required to file a notice of recusal with the state registrar. Uh, In addition, uh, the statute identifies three sets of religious or moral beliefs, which it says uh, that people can act upon without risking any kind of uh, adverse action by the state government or local government. Uh, These are spelled out in Section 2 of the law, uh, referred to as sincerely held religious beliefs or moral convictions, uh, no indication how we determine whether they're sincere. Uh, I think the penile plethysmograph is probably the way to go, but I don't think the state would agree with me. So in any event, uh, these are, first, that marriage is or should be recognized as the union of one man and one woman. Uh, second, that sexual relations are properly reserved to such a marriage. And third, that men and women or male or female refer to an individual's immutable biological sex as objectively determined by anatomy and genetics at birth. Uh, So these are what became the problem, really. Well, these are the three privileged beliefs. That is, if someone believes that the Supreme Court was wrong, if someone believes that only sex in heterosexual marriage is proper... And if someone believes that transgenderism or gender identity doesn't exist uh, and they act consistent with those beliefs, they may not suffer any adverse consequences from the government. Uh, So uh, this has been attacked in various ways. Uh, One lawsuit was filed – or actually a motion was filed in an existing lawsuit, the uh, lawsuit that was decided – previously uh, invalidating the ban on same-sex marriage in Mississippi. So uh, the attorneys in that case, led by Robbie Kaplan of uh, Paul Weiss here in New York, uh, filed a motion to reopen that case uh, because they said that the portion of this statute that allows clerks to refuse to issue licenses is in violation of the injunction that U.S. District Judge Carlton Reeves issued in this case. 
uh, the injunction required uh, all uh, state officials uh, to refrain from enforcing the state's statutory ban and constitutional ban on same-sex marriage. Now, the legislature has not repealed the statutory ban. It's still on the books. And the uh, constitutional amendment is still there in the state constitution. Uh, So this motion contends that allowing clerks to recuse themselves is violating the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell and that the injunction required all state officials to comply with the Obergefell ruling. Uh, So on June 27th, Judge Reeves agreed with the plaintiffs, said he would reopen the case for the limited purpose of reframing the injunction as necessary to make it absolutely clear. Uh, The the state had raised this technical uh, objection. They said, the circuit court clerks are not state employees. They're employees of the county, and therefore they're not covered by the injunction. And Reeves said, well, just to make it clear, I consider them to be part of the state government because they are administering the state marriage law. Uh, Furthermore, there was a a discovery issue that had to be addressed. Uh, The plaintiffs said, we think that the state registrar should be required to disclose which clerks have filed recusal notices. And the state registrar was saying, well, but I am not a defendant in this case, and I am not subject to the injunction. And Judge Reeves said, just a minute, you're a state employee, right? (laughs) All state employees are subject to the injunction, so uh, you should be subject to discovery requests. So what he did was, uh, because at this point it was on uh, a motion to reopen the case, uh, he said, okay, I'm going to reopen the case to that limited extent, and I'm going to require the attorneys for the state to sit down with the attorneys for the plaintiffs and come to some agreement about the language for rewording the injunction. And, of course, if they don't come to an agreement, he will do it himself. Uh, but meanwhile, Judge Reeves uh, was also faced with some uh, new lawsuits that challenged the statute head-on and claimed that the statute violated the Establishment Clause, it violated the Equal Protection Clause, uh, and seeking a preliminary injunction because, uh, by its terms, the statute was to go into effect on July 1st. Uh, so without... Signaling what he was going to do, uh, Judge Reeves kept everyone in suspense until, until the evening of uh, July thir- of June 30th when uh, shortly before midnight he issued a 60-page opinion in which he felt that or uh, he expressed that all of the requirements for a preliminary injunction had been met and he would preliminarily enjoin the entire statute, not just the uh, provision on the clerk recusals. Uh, so – Turning first to the Establishment Clause issue, he said, okay, they have made a list of three beliefs, which are primarily religious beliefs, and they've privileged those religious beliefs. And that violates the requirement under the the, uh, Establishment Clause that the state not take sides on religious controversies, uh, that the state has to be neutral in matters of religion, uh, and therefore it can't provide special rights to people based on their religious beliefs. I mean, if you if you think back uh, to the case of Employment Division versus Smith from 25 years ago, where the Supreme Court said that there is not a generalized religious exemption under the First Amendment for complying uh, or from complying with 
neutral state laws, state laws of general application that weren't specifically targeting religious practice. And of course, this is very ironic because we're always accused of wanting special rights, right. but this actually did create right. special they rights. They wanted special rights. So uh, so Judge Reeves said they, they, they don't get special rights. Uh, furthermore, uh, he pointed out uh, the, the equal protection issues are, are pretty clear here, uh, that they're basically in these particular uh, – religious beliefs that they are privileging, they are basically treating gay and transgender people as second-class citizens. They're, they're basically uh, singling them out as a group that has less protection under state law than everyone else. Now, an irony of this and, and sort of an ironic part of the state's argument to defense, they said, well, just a minute, nobody is being harmed here because under Mississippi law, it isn't illegal to discriminate against gay people or transgender people under Mississippi law. Uh, and therefore, saying that people won't suffer an adverse consequence because they discriminate against gay or transgender people is not creating some kind of new right or privilege. Uh, as far as the state was concerned in terms of arguing this, this was an entirely symbolic law. Well, there's a problem with that. The state may not express that a group of people are lesser or don't have the same full rights of citizenship. And, and, and furthermore, versus Evans. yeah, and, and of course, after this bill was passed, the city of Jackson passed a gay rights bill, an LGBT rights bill. They amended their uh, city non-discrimination ordinance to add sexual orientation and gender identity. And furthermore, he pointed out uh, the University of Southern Mississippi has a non-discrimination policy as well. So he said it isn't merely symbolic. Uh, a, a large city with a large population would be affected by this. A large university would be affected by this. It would have real consequences for people. Uh, so he issued a preliminary injunction, and uh, the governor uh, immediately filed a motion to stay so that the law could go into effect, and Judge Reeves denied it. Uh, and the governor has filed a, an appeal with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals asking for a stay. And if he doesn't get a stay, I think Governor Bryant will probably petition the Supreme Court asking for a stay. Uh, but uh, that's where uh, this stands now. In Perhaps the Fifth Circuit is not as uh, scary as it as it once was. Yesterday they struck down the Texas voter ID law. Right. Well, one, one can hope. Yeah. And that was an on-bank. Yeah. Uh, nine to six. They got four of the Republicans, yeah. I thought. So, so uh, this case is, is pending. Now, there is other litigation pending uh, that will also bear on this, and that is, although the state of Mississippi doesn't ban sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination, there is an argument that Title VII bans discrimination in employment, and Title IX bans discrimination in educational institutions, and that the Fair Housing Act violates discrimination in housing. Uh, so, and these issues are being litigated around the country. Uh, there is a case that was filed by the state of Texas with a whole bunch of other states uh, in the U.S. District Court in the Northern District of Texas seeking a declaration that the Obama administration's interpretation of Title IX is invalid. Uh, and there are cases pending around the country, which we'll be talking about in our next segment, about the interpretation of Title VII. Uh, so it's possible of course, that there are uh, businesses in Mississippi that are bound not to discriminate on this basis by federal law. And, of course, the state law 
uh, would have to yield to the federal law under the Supremacy Clause. So it could be, ultimately, that this is a largely symbolic law, but you know, symbolic laws are laws nonetheless. Uh, in Declaration, uh, that particular religious beliefs are privileged in the state of Mississippi certainly violates the Establishment Clause. In fact, one local law professor was quoted in the local press as saying, it's such an easy issue, I wouldn't even use it for an exam question. Crazy stuff. All right, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll discuss new decisions on the issue you just mentioned, uh, the continually pressing issue of the coverage of Title VII. We are back discussing the continuing development of the law concerning whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 covers employment discrimination based on sexual orientation. Can you bring us up to speed with the several new decisions from the past month and where they came down, Art? Okay, and uh, this is this is something to watch, really, what's playing out. Uh, our listeners may recall the last summer on July 15th, just uh, almost exactly a year ago, yeah. as we were making this podcast, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission issued its decision in Baldwin versus Fox, reversing half a century of agency precedent and taking the position that the ban on sex discrimination in Title VII, the Federal Employment Discrimination Statute, includes sexual orientation. And a few years earlier, they had said it includes gender identity. So the EEOC, which is the agency charged with the primary task of interpreting and enforcing the statute, has now taken this position. And in, in support of that position, they have filed amicus briefs in pending cases, and they have even initiated some cases on their own. Uh, the EEOC gets hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of charges of discrimination, but most of the time, because of the limited uh, resources of the agency, they just issue a letter to uh, the charging party saying they're authorized to, to file a lawsuit on their own. But sometimes they decide that it's uh, important for the agency in developing the law to go out there and file suit. Uh, frequently those are pattern or practice cases that involve systemic discrimination. But frequently these days in the sexual orientation and gender identity area, they are on behalf of a particular charging party. And uh, the EOC has just in recent days filed some uh, sexual orientation and gender identity cases around the country. But meanwhile, how is this playing out on the courts? Because although the EEOC plays an appellate role in federal discrimination claims, that is, claims against the federal government by its employees, uh, it does not have an adjudicatory function as far as private sector claims go, which is the overwhelming bulk of the claims that are filed. Uh, in those cases, it has a role of investigating and attempting to conciliate, but ultimately it either has to go to court to try to enforce its finding that someone was unlawfully discriminated against or, as I said, issue a right to sue letter and allow the person to go into court on their own. So the question is, how are federal district courts responding to this? And over the past year, the answer is it depends where they are. Uh, and that heavily turns on whether the circuit court, in a particular circuit, has previously issued a decision on this question. And to date, no circuit court has issued a decision holding that Title VII covers sexual orientation discrimination claims. Uh, the closest we've come to that is the Fourth Circuit's decision issued a few months ago holding that a federal district judge in Virginia should have deferred 
to the Education Department's construction of Title IX to cover gender identity right. claims. But, and, and we have a few other uh, Court of Appeals decisions on gender identity, but we don't yet have a Court of Appeals decision on sexual orientation under Title VII. So if a district judge is in a state that's in a circuit that has adverse precedent, they're most likely going to dismiss the case when the employer objects that it's not covered by Title VII, but not always. And if there is no adverse uh, precedent directly on point, some judges, and this is particularly true in the 11th Circuit, which doesn't have any direct adverse precedent on point, some of the district judges are running with it. Mm -hmm. So uh, during the months of May and June, uh, we've had decisions by district judges in Virginia, New York, Illinois, Mississippi, Connecticut, Indiana, and Florida, all ruling on motions by employers to dismiss Title VII claims that involved in some way sexual orientation. Uh, so I'll go through a few of those. Uh, the, the one that uh, is, I'd say, the most pro-gay, the one that goes for the broadest, is a decision that was issued by uh, Judge Mark Walker of the Northern District of Florida uh, on June 20th in the case of Winstead against Lafayette County Board of County Commissioners. Uh, in this case, he pointed out, first of all, the 11th Circuit doesn't have an adverse decision on point. Secondly, the 11th Circuit did rule uh, a few years ago in the case of Glenn versus Brumby that an equal protection claim could be brought by a transgender state employee uh, as a form of sex discrimination. And logically, if gender identity comes under sex discrimination, Walker saw some support there for a broader reading of the idea of sex discrimination in the 11th Circuit. Uh, but in particular, he singled out the Baldwin ruling by the EEOC, which was not any sort of pro forma decision. It was a lengthy opinion that went through all of the case law and, and history and policy and came to this conclusion, and he felt that it was persuasive and should be followed. Uh, even though technically it's not binding, it doesn't get Chevron deference, but uh, it gets deference to the degree that it is persuasive. That's what the Supreme Court says about EEOC interpretations of the statute. Uh, so he said uh, some courts that have rejected this idea have said that this is using the sex stereotyping theory, which the Supreme Court uh, approved in the Price Waterhouse case back in 1989 to bootstrap sexual orientation protection into Title VII. And he says these arguments seem to this court to misapprehend the nature of animus towards people based on their sexual orientation, actual or perceived. Such animus, whatever its origin, is at its core based on disapproval of certain behaviors, real or assumed, and tendencies towards behaviors, and those behaviors are disapproved of precisely because they are deemed to be, quote, inappropriate for members of a certain sex or gender. So he is basically persuaded by the EEOC's argument that uh, sexual orientation discrimination is necessarily, and that's the word they used, necessarily a form of sex discrimination because it is imposing on people a code of behavior depending on whether they're perceived as male or female mm -hmm. and saying you must conform with that. And part of that code of behavior is you can't have a, an emotional sexual relationship with a same-sex partner. 
Uh, some courts have said, no, what we're looking at in terms of sexual stereotyping, we're looking at whether you have a man who is effeminate or a woman who's masculine. And they look back at Price Waterhouse, which involved a woman who was not a lesbian, uh, but who was uh, very masculine in her approach and uh, encountered in her appearance, her grooming, her her speech, her behavior. And uh, she was denied a partnership at Price Waterhouse. And the uh, manager in her office said, well, you've got to, you know, wear makeup and wear jewelry and be more feminine and maybe you'll succeed. Uh, And the Supreme Court said, well, that's discrimination based on sex. Uh, And that's what the courts have been running with in both the gender identity and sexual orientation cases when they have ruled in favor of the plaintiffs on these motions to dismiss. But we have all these other cases in which uh, most of them, uh, the, the courts were not willing to go along mainly because of uh, circuit precedent. Uh, we had a decision from on May 5th from the Eastern District of Virginia by Judge Robert Payne in the case of Hinton against Virginia Union University. The uh, complaint set out very clearly in a way that would certainly meet federal pleading guidelines evidence, direct evidence of anti-gay discriminatory animus by the president of the university. Uh, but Judge Payne said, well, there's this 1996 decision by the Fourth Circuit, uh, rights and against Pizza Hut of America, which said you can't bring a sexual orientation discrimination claim under Title VII. I'm a district judge in the Fourth Circuit. I'm bound. Uh, we had a decision by uh, Judge Sandra Feuerstein of the Eastern District of New York on May 17th in the case of Magnuson against County of Suffolk. Uh, once again saying, well, there's this Second Circuit case, Dawson versus Bumble and Bumble from 2005, and there was an earlier case, uh, Simonton against Runyon, both of which rejected the idea that Title VII could be used for a sexual orientation claim. Uh, she basically said, I wish the Second Circuit would overrule me. You know, it can't do anything about this. Uh, another judge within the Second Circuit, which includes Connecticut, uh, Judge Jeffrey Meyer uh, in the District of Connecticut dismissed a Title VII sex discrimination claim uh, by a gay male plaintiff in Pelletier versus Purdue Pharma LP. Uh, that was on June 29th. Uh, once again, he says, I'm barred by Second Circuit precedent here. I can't do anything about this. He said, uh, I might be able to treat this as a sexual stereotyping claim within the Second Circuit, but there's nothing in the plaintiff's complaint to suggest that he was effeminate in any way or that uh, he was singled out for not being masculine enough. The problem was he had a same-sex partner, and the employer freaked out about that. So that's not covered. I also think the Second Circuit might... I, they've now said that uh, sexual orientation claims under the Constitution are entitled to heightened scrutiny. scrutiny. So. There might be something you could work with there to show that the Second Circuit has changed. Uh, the, the point is the Second Circuit is now uh, considering this issue. Yeah. Uh, there's a case that uh, was decided uh, in March, uh, Christensen against Omnicom Group, which is on appeal, right. where the district judge uh, dismissed the Title VII claim on this ground. And... Uh, The deadline for filing amicus briefs in that case was June 28th, and there was a little flurry of media attention because not only did the EEOC file an amicus brief, but a group of 128 members of Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, who are co-sponsors of the Equality Act, filed an amicus brief 
and I think the the main reason for filing the amicus brief, apart from just going on record and saying that they thought the court should adopt a broader reading of Title VII, uh, was to say to the court, look, you shouldn't make anything about the fact that we have introduced and co-sponsored the Equality Act. Don't construe that as meaning that we think Title VII doesn't cover this and shouldn't cover this. We're putting that in because we've got to overrule all these court of appeals decisions around the country. We've got to make it clear that Congress believes that sexual orientation should be covered under Title VII. And that's why that law proposes to amend Title VII to make it clear. But that's just clarifying what we think the law already should be interpreted to mean. Uh, so that case will be argued uh, now that uh, the amicus brief uh, filing deadline has passed. I would imagine oral argument will not be too too far off in that case. But in the meanwhile, we had a very interesting development going on in the Seventh Circuit. Uh, we have a senior district judge in the Second Circuit, Milton Shader, who was asked to dismiss a Title VII claim uh, that raised sexual orientation issues. And in a May 31st decision in Metafta versus Board of Education, he said, you know, the Seventh Circuit has actually heard oral argument on this question way back in September, and they haven't ruled yet. And it would be prudent of me to wait and not rule on this motion to dismiss, to just put it on hold and see what the Seventh Circuit does. Mm -hmm. And so Judge Shader refused to dismiss he put it on hold, and he said if the Seventh Circuit doesn't rule by July 29th, we'll have a conference and decide whether to keep it on hold. But it's it seems likely. I mean, the Seventh Circuit heard arguments in September. They haven't issued a decision yet. Uh, that may be because the Seventh Circuit panel that heard the argument is conflicted about this. Uh, and uh, that wouldn't be surprising because there is bad Seventh Circuit precedent on this issue, uh, including a, a – an opinion written by Richard Posner, who is one of the most influential judges on that circuit. Uh, so if the three-judge panel, if they want to change but they feel they can't because a three-judge panel can't reverse a prior panel, panel ruling, maybe there will be some move within the Seventh Circuit to go on bank on their own motion on this uh, or to declare that the earlier ruling is no longer valid because it's been superseded by events. That's a possibility. Uh, so uh, we've got this interesting situation uh, that's developing. Uh, we also have uh, some cases in uh, in the fifth uh, – a case in particular in the Fifth Circuit, uh, which was decided on June 13th, Brown against Subway Sandwich Shop of Laurel, uh, Mississippi. Uh, Judge Keith Starrett cited prior Fifth Circuit rulings and said – got to dismiss this case. Uh, but there's a, another case from uh, the Seventh Circuit that's sort of interesting uh, that takes a different direction here. Uh, Summers against Express Scripts Holdings from June 29th. Uh, in this case, District Judge Jane Magnus Stinson notes that the plaintiff is not alleging sexual orientation discrimination. He's alleging that he was subjected to harassment of a sexual nature in the workplace uh, by other male employees. Uh, he says it is sex discrimination. Now, some of this harassment is explicitly homophobic, but 
Mr. Summers never alleges anywhere that he's either gay or perceived as being gay. And so Judge Magnus Stinson says, I'm going to treat this as a sex discrimination case. I think that the factual allegations are sufficient to allow this to go forward as a sex discrimination case, uh, even though even though in this case uh, the employer is taking the position that it's clearly a sexual orientation harassment case. And that was the basis on which they filed the motion to dismiss. But, but she said, well, the plaintiff didn't plead that it's a sexual orientation discrimination case. Now, one of the uh, Supreme Court precedents here, which is important, is the on-call decision in which the Supreme Court said that same-sex harassment could be actionable under Title VII, uh, provided that it is shown that the victim has been harassed because of his or her sex. Uh, but they didn't go very far in explaining that. Uh, Justice Scalia wrote the opinion for the unanimous court, uh, and Justice Scalia did say that in that case you could prove that the discrimination was because of sex if you could show that a gay supervisor was harassing an employee, that is, seeking sexual favors or threatening an employee if they didn't engage in sex. That might be an example of sex discrimination that you could show. And in responding to the motion to dismiss, Summers' responsive paper alleged that one of his harassers is gay. <laughs> but uh, the judge said, well, you know, what you allege in response to a motion to dismiss is not your complaint. And in deciding on a motion to dismiss, I'm supposed to look at the allegations of your complaint. So I can't treat that as, uh, as hypothetically true for purposes of deciding this motion. But let's see what happens when this case goes to discovery and then to trial. So we have you know, these interesting cases all over the country uh, in many different circuits. Uh, we have the Seventh Circuit and the Second Circuit both pondering this issue. Uh, they're both three-judge panels, and they're both in circuits that have adverse circuit precedent. So there's some question what the three-judge panel can do about that since most circuits do follow the rule the three-judge panels are bound by prior three-judge panel decisions, and only an on-bank can, can change them. Uh, the amicus brief that was filed by the members of Congress also had a little section addressing that issue. They, they pointed out that the Second Circuit has in the past sometimes uh, allowed a three-judge panel to do a sort of mini on-bank in the sense that they come up with the decision they want to do, which reverses prior circuit precedent. They circulate it internally to the other judges, and if no one objects, they issue it. Uh, so they're suggesting that they follow that procedure. We'll see what happens. Uh, the Second Circuit will have arguments sh shortly. The Seventh Circuit had argument way back last fall, so uh, presumably a decision should be coming soon. And meanwhile, we still have an eight-member Supreme Court that probably couldn't settle this if anything got there. Well, we don't know. We don't know how the court would divide on this question, uh. although I think it, uh, we could predict that it would be four to four most likely, uh, unless uh, Justice Kennedy was – well, if Justice Kennedy changed his mind on this. He's not so great on Title Seven. No, but. he isn't. Uh, but he did uh, join the majority that upheld the affirmative action program at the University of Texas he Law had a, School. He so. had a pretty liberal term. Yeah. All right. Interesting stuff as always. We will take another short break, and when we return, we'll switch gears and talk about some good and bad decisions for LGBT parents in Maryland, Michigan, and Indiana.
We are back to talk about three presidential court decisions from the past month relating to the rights of LGBT parents. Can you tell us what happened in Maryland, Michigan, and Indiana, Art? Okay, we'll start with Maryland, where we have a decision by the highest state court, uh, the Court of Appeals, in the case of Conover against Conover, uh, which was uh, decided on July 7th. Uh, Maryland is a state where the, uh, the courts have been notably hostile to custody or visitation claims by same-sex co-parents. That is, situations uh, most often arises in the context of a lesbian couple who decides to have a kid together. And uh, then uh, the relationship breaks down, and the birth mother eventually excludes uh, her former partner from further contact with the kid, and then uh, the uh, co-parent, as she labels herself, uh, brings suit seeking uh, usually visitation, sometimes seeking joint custody or even full custody. Uh, and the barrier that many courts have set and that the Maryland courts had traditionally set was a standing barrier. They said that uh, the only way an unrelated third party, a not legally related or biologically related third party, could seek custody or visitation over the protest of a legal parent is to show that that legal parent is unfit or that there are exceptional circumstances that would justify breaching the constitutional right of the legal parent to control who has access to their child. Uh, and this has been the rule in Maryland, uh, including cases by the Maryland Court of Appeals. So in this case, in this case, the argument was made that either it should be found that there are exceptional circumstances here because these, uh, these women decided together to have a child and the donor insemination process was carried out by joint agreement that they were both going to parent this child and after the child was born they both parented the child until their relationship broke down. Uh, and they said that somehow the court should recognize that parental relationship as having some meaning because the ultimate issue to be addressed in any dispute of this sort is the best interest of the child. And if you raise the standing barrier and say that uh, someone doesn't have standing unless they can show that the parent is unfit or that there are exceptional circumstances. Uh, and what the Court of Appeals did in this case is they said, we goofed. They said, our prior decisions are clearly wrong. And for one thing, they said the most important of the prior decisions, Janice M. versus Margaret K. from 2008, was based on what they now come to see as a faulty reading of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Troxel versus Granville, which was a grandparent visitation case, where the grandparents did not have a parental relationship with the child. Uh, they said, we think the sounder approach, looking at the trend in other states, is that pioneered by the Wisconsin Supreme Court many years ago called de facto parent. That is, if uh, a couple has decided, mutually decided to have a child together, and the birth mother has fostered a parental relationship with her partner, and the partner has played the role of a parent uh, in the life of the child and a bond has formed, we're going to treat that co-parent as a de facto parent for purposes of our custody and visitation statutes. And therefore, if someone can establish that they're a de facto parent and they do have to meet a multi-part test that's spelled out 
in the Wisconsin cases and that's adopted here by the Maryland Court of Appeals, then the issue is what's in the best interest of the child? Is it in the best interest of the child to have continuing contact with this person? Is it in the best interest of the child for this person, this de facto parent, to play a parental role beyond mere visitation? Should they have some input into issues of education and upbringing and things of that sort? Uh, in other words, the typical factual exploration that a family court would make between two legal parents. The de facto parent is treated as a parent for all purposes. Uh, so now the procedural barrier or the, the evidentiary barrier at the outset is to allege facts sufficient to uh, survive a motion to dismiss the claim that you're a de facto parent. So there will probably be some preliminary litigation uh, over uh, whether someone is a de facto parent, but if they can establish that they are, then they can contest uh, custody and visitation. Now, this is a trend. Uh, it is not universal by any means. In fact, we still don't have uh, anything like this in New York. We still have Allison D. versus Virginia M., a case from 25 years ago in which the Court of Appeals said that a co-parent in this kind of situation is a legal stranger who has no standing to seek custody or visitation. The Court of Appeals heard arguments at the beginning of June in two cases that put that back into play, uh, in which lower courts held there was no standing, and the Court of Appeals has allowed an appeal, and we're waiting. And uh, I was actually sort of surprised to learn uh, that the Court of Appeals went off on its summer vacation and said, we're going to put off deciding this case until we come back. It's unusual. The New York Court of Appeals is usually pretty fast after oral argument, and I was actually expecting that we would have a decision before mm -hmm. vacation. Well, but hopefully the, this will add to momentum for a good yes, decision. Perhaps, know? perhaps. Uh, but in the meantime, we had a setback in Michigan, uh, where uh, the Court of Appeals, which in Michigan is an intermediate appellate court, this isn't a Supreme Court decision, the Court of Appeals unanimously ruled on July 5th uh, that Michelle, Michelle Lake, a lesbian co-parent, did not have standing to seek visitation with the uh, biological child of her former partner, Carrie Putnam. Uh, fact situation very much like the Maryland case of the Conovers. Uh, by the way, it's, it's Conover versus Conover, but uh, they're not using, they're not both using that last name anymore. But at the time the case was filed, that was the last name uh, because it was part of a divorce proceeding. Uh, so in this case, uh, oh, and I should explain that reference to a divorce proceeding. The women had gotten married in the District of Columbia after the child was born. If they had waited, uh, or rather, if they had not waited and they'd gotten married before their child was born, the case would have come out differently in Maryland, most likely, uh, at the lower level. And it wouldn't have had to go to the uh, Court of Appeals, uh, presuming that the Maryland courts would take the view that a child born to a married same-sex couple would be the legal child of both of those uh, uh, spouses. So anyway, in this Michigan case, uh, the court said, look, our statutes do not give third parties standing uh, to seek visitation over the protests of the legal parent. And uh, she had, uh, the, the co-parent, uh, Michelle Lake, had tried to argue based on a statutory uh, exception to that general rule called equitable parenting. 
but the statute is worded in such a way that it would be quite a, a stretch to interpret it this way. It's, it says that a husband who is not the biological father of a child born or conceived during wedlock may nevertheless be considered that child's natural parent if three requirements are satisfied. The husband and the child must mutually acknowledge their father-child relationship, or the child's mother must have cooperated in the development of that father-child relationship prior to the time that divorce proceedings commenced. The husband must express a desire to have parental rights to the child, and the husband must be willing to accept the responsibility of paying child support. Well, Michelle Lake said, why don't we take that statute and the concept of an equitable parent and apply it to me? Because we were in a relationship when the child was born. My relationship with the child was fostered by, uh, by Kerry Putnam. I took on all the rights and responsibilities of a parent. Uh, the child acknowledges me as one of her mothers, etc., etc. Just draw analogies. And the court said, well, we, we can't do that because there's a very, very important prerequisite in there. The child was born in wedlock. And that clearly evinces the uh, policy decision made by the legislature that we're only going to use this equitable parenting doctrine for children who are born to married women. And in this case, the two women are not married. Uh, and the court pointed out that they could have been because at the time they had the child, although same-sex marriage was not available in Michigan and out-of-state same-sex marriages weren't recognized in Michigan, nonetheless, this child was born at a time when they could have gone to any of a number of states as well as Canada and gotten married. And the court pointed out that in her complaint in this case, Michelle never alleged that the women would have married if they could. And the court seemed to think that was significant. Uh, in fact, the concurring judge said, you know, if they had presented evidence that they would have married if they could, I might have voted differently in this case. You know, we might have treated this differently. Uh, since it has subsequently been ruled that Michigan's denial of the right to marry was unconstitutional. So, I can think you know, of many family law advocates' head exploding at the, yeah, some of that stuff yeah, about being true. married. And, uh, but uh, right. the decision is what it is. Right. And then the Indiana case, which we can just uh, go through pretty quickly. This yeah. is a, a U.S. District Court decision. Uh, U.S. District Judge Tanya Walton Pratt in uh, the District of Indiana ruled on June 30th that the state has got to comply with Obergefell versus Hodges. Uh, the state was saying a child born to a married lesbian couple, only the birth mother's name goes on the birth certificate, and the other mother doesn't get on there unless she adopts the child. And Judge Price said, that's ridiculous. The Supreme Court held in Obergefell that same-sex couples who get married are entitled to be treated the same as different-sex couples who get married. And different-sex couples who get married, we presume that the spouse of the birth mother gets on that birth certificate as a parent. And the sort of worksheet they have in Indiana is almost based you know, on a 1950s nuclear family right. presumption that doesn't work here. Yeah, so she says, you know, they've got to they got to rewrite their software here. Uh, and this was a case that was brought on behalf of several couples, all of whom had children after they married. Uh, and uh, same-sex marriage has been available in Indiana somewhat longer because uh, the Seventh Circuit's uh, ruling on the marriage equality case in that circuit was denied uh, review by the Supreme Court 
2014. Yep. So uh, marriages have been going on there for uh, quite a bit longer, not just the one year in the post-Obergefell uh, states. And the issue is really it came down to sex discrimination, as the judge saw, right. because uh, the spouses of artificially inseminated men were being treated th differently than the spouses of artificially inseminated women. Right. So we have an equal protection issue there. Yeah. Uh, and a due process violation under Obergefell, Correct. says the court. All right. Uh, we'll take our last short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a great ruling from a New York federal judge for the trans community. All right, we are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this edition. Uh, in 2014, two transgender women filed a federal class action lawsuit against the New York State Department of Health over a categorical Medicaid exclusion for cosmetic surgery in connection with gender transition. Can you tell us what happened a couple weeks ago with this case, Art? Yeah, on July 5th, Judge Jed Rakoff in the U.S. District Court in the Southern District of New York ruled in Cruz v. Zucker that a categorical exclusion of procedures deemed by the state to be cosmetic was in violation of the Medicaid statute uh, because there was very persuasive evidence presented to the court that certain cosmetic procedures or procedures that are frequently deemed cosmetic are an essential part of a successful gender transition that it's not enough just to address the genitals, that uh, you have to address the rest of the body as well if someone is going to be able to live in their, in, in accord with their gender identity. Uh, there was another aspect of the case uh, which uh, the judge said will require further hearing, and that is what kind of treatment should be available under Medicaid to transgender minors, the transgender people under the age of 18. Uh, should Medicaid... Uh, provide hormone therapy, should Medicaid cover sex reassignment surgery uh, procedures uh, for minors. And that's a hotly contested issue. Uh, the, uh, the judge said uh, there are important factual disputes that have to be gotten through on that one. So that's going to be put down for a hearing. But major victory on the uh, so-called cosmetic procedures. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you enjoy the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, enjoy the rest of your summer, and we will see you in September. Mm -hmm.